So a few days ago, my father-in-law, Richard Guggenheimer, passed away at age 78. He was a dad of three, a grandfather of five, and a man who, after spending all of his life in New York, moved out here to Southern California for what would turn out to be the final seven years. My father-in-law was a really good man, very quiet, very soft-spoken, not judgmental or arrogant, just a good guy who enjoyed cards, game shows, and occasional drink. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of going through life believing we have to be quote-unquote special, the fastest, the coolest, the best writer, which is fine. But come day's end, when all is written, I hope someone says he was a really decent person, as I do about Richard Guggenheimer. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Catherine Perlman, my wife of 20 years and author of a brand new book, First Phone, A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette. This is episode number 269. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. Okay. I'm here with Catherine Perlman, and we just actually recorded an introduction that didn't go very well. Um, and I was thinking about something before we go on here. Because, you know, I have a lot of comments when people say like, oh, I like when you guys you guys do it together. I've had people say that before to me, and they like our chemistry and blah, blah, blah. And um, we, I, I mentioned this on social media, as did you, your dad, Richard Guggenheimer, passed away last week. And it's been very hard for the family, very, very hard on you because you spent a lot of time with him. And um, you and I handle grief in very, very different ways. And I actually, I started the original recording of this by asking you about your dad a bunch and you didn't really want to talk about it. And I like talking about everything and talking and talking and talking and talking. It all dates back to 9-11 for us where we we're newly together basically. And all I wanted to do is absorb 9-11, this tragedy around us. And all you wanted to do is not absorb 9-11. Um, and yet somehow we've survived in this wacky marriage, maybe by deleting podcast insurance. How do you explain that one? I mean, I think most of the time we mesh very well. It's only when there's like some major trauma that you and I handle things differently. And you're definitely more of a process out loud kind of person. (laughs) (laughs) And I may process quietly until I'm done processing and then I can speak and write about things. So um, I think when something hits us both at the same time, then it's a little bit of friction until we sort of move in the same direction again. But yes, we, we're, we're not the same people. Actually, it's really interesting. I do want to say one thing before you get into your book, which is, I think when you're, we've been married for 20 years, which is a long time. And <laughs> to say it like long. Which is a long, well. <laughs> and um, one thing that happens is you do start to pick up, like back in the day, if you did silent on me, if you went silent on me, I'd be really offended. I'd be like, what the hell? You know, like, and even now your dad died and I'm aware at this point, you process quietly. You don't want to talk about it a million times. You don't want me to come up to you a million times and say, it's okay, it's okay, blah, blah, blah. And I still struggle with that a little. I still want to. But I do feel like over time, part of being married or in any kind of relationship, long-term relationship, is reading the room. You know? Don't you think? Why, are you saying I don't do that well? Your face is saying I don't do that well. No, I think you read the room, but like 
I'd say 90% of the time you're like, okay, I see what's happening here. Let me back out. And then I'd say 10% of the time it's like, you just can't fathom. Like, wait, I really, you really don't want me to check in. You really don't want me to do something, but, um, you know, we'll get through it and (laughs) I'll still love you and you'll still love me and we'll just, you know. This is our last podcast we're ever doing together. That's all I know. Um, wait, so this week has been a real shitter. We, um, your father passed, then our son, we, we went COVID-less. I mean, Two years for, and four months, I think. Geez, we did really well. And then our son was supposed to actually start a program today, a sleepaway program today. This morning, he tested positive. But the good news, and we needed some good news, is you have a book coming out. It's your second book. It's called First Phone, A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette. And... Um, your last book came out in 2017. Yes. And the thing that is amazing to me, amazing is the wrong word, but the thing that kind of dazzles me here is I've been, in, I've been a writer my whole life and you've used me literally 0% to get a book deal ever. To get an agent, didn't use me. To get a book deal, didn't use me. Um, nothing, zero. For this book deal, second book deal, didn't didn't use me. And you do not have a journalism background. So I'm going to start probably the same place I started with our first the first time you appeared on this podcast. How the fuck does a social worker get two book deals? Well, I mean, it was the slow process. You know, when I first started my private practice, I needed advertising. So I took an ad out in the paper. It was like two fifty for a small little ad. And I was like, well, I can't do that. And then I noticed that if you wrote an article, then they put your bio and link to your website for free. So I thought, oh, that's a good idea. So I started writing. And as you recall, my writing was terrible because I had an academic background. I wrote a PhD. Like, it's just very- It wasn't different. terrible. It was academic. Yeah. I mean, but nobody wants to read that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I feel like you say you didn't help me get a deal at all, which is true. And I, I did all the work myself, but- I feel like I live with my writing coach, editor. So along the way, I've, you know, I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and learned. Um, and little by little, I got closer to writing a book. And the thing is, I always wanted to write a book for years. Even before I met you, I don't know if you remember, I pitched a- um, Wait, dating, what was the book about? It was a blind dating book. It was basically like a hundred questions to ask on a blind date. Um, and you had a proposal. I did have a proposal and I sent it out. I remember I mailed it out. Uh-huh. Um, I read that. I got, I got nothing, but that's okay. But it's more just like the desire was always there to write a book. I just didn't have the tools. And I think it was actually good. I never tried to write a book before, ignore it, because I really did need the time to A, work on my practice, like actually work with parents and kids, and then B, work on writing so I could communicate what I wanted to say. And I think, you know, I've kind of over the years developed my own style very practical um, and, you know, just kind of happened. But I think, you know, it's kind of like not taking no for an answer, you know, which I think is something you've, you did a lot in your career. And, uh, you know, if I get something in my head, I just, I'm going to keep trying until I do it. So, you know, people are like, well, how'd you get an agent? Well, I wrote to 50 agents. How'd you find those agents to write to? Uh, Sometimes I went in the bookstore and I looked in, everybody thanks her agent in their, Acknowledgements. So I looked at other like parenting books and then like publishers like Marketplace or Google, you know, and you have to find people who are in the right genre. And um, and I also Googled like how to write a proposal, because I mean, for you, it's very different. You have a book idea. You're not writing an 80 page proposal for your books. I did originally. Exactly. But that was uh-huh. 20 years ago. 
um, you know, for me, that's that's still pretty regular. And actually, I kind of like that process. So it's, oh. it's, I know. Wait, why do you like that? I hate it. It's not that I think it's like a fun time, but I think it's actually really important because, you know, I've written a few proposals and then realized this isn't a book or this isn't a book I want to do. So I think spending the time on the proposal is helpful in that way. And then also prepares you. I mean, you have to do an outline, which, you know, in a way, if you're writing a biography might be a little bit less important, but I think for my kind of book, the outline was really, really helpful. And the more work you put in up front, the easier it is to get started. I want to go back a second to something you said. You, um, you wrote a proposal back in the uh, probably mid to late 90s about blind dating, mm -hmm. the, the, all the questions you should ask on a blind date. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell the story of the silence, silence of the Lambs guy? Which guy? The guy, oh no, the guy who, you went on a blind date with a guy who like, what was his job or some really creepy oh, job? Okay, so first of all, I went on a lot of blind dates because, you know, I was single, I was in New York and everybody has someone to set me up with. You were like Carrie Bradshaw. I was kind of like Carrie Bradshaw, yeah. I went on a lot of dates. So I, one guy, actually he was a nice guy and I dated him a little bit. Mm -hmm. His name was Artur <laughs> and he was a nice guy, but for his job, he basically killed rats for a living. Like he was a researcher and he took care of rats, like, and then killed them for, like, analysis. That's pretty awesome. Wait, and what's the story about the guy who ordered tripe? Oh, there was this one guy, and he was kind of, like, too cool for me. Like, like me. Yeah, but, like, just not my kind of style. And we went out to a nice restaurant, and he, this was the first date, and he, he ordered tripe. And I said, really, tripe? And he's like, yeah. And I said, do you know what that is? And he said, yeah. I said, okay. So then it comes and it doesn't look good. And he's sort of like picking at it with a fork and he's nudging it and it does not look appetizing. And I was like, you okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I go, you sure you know what tripe is? And he goes, yeah, it's fish. And I'm like, no, not fish. I start hysterically laughing and I said, I call the waiter over. And I'm like, can you tell us again, what, what's tripe? And the guy said, it's the lining of the third stomach of the cow. And I just started laughing, 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 laughing in this guy's face. Let's just say we did not go out again. That guy might be the president of the Tripe Appreciation Society of America now. I don't think he liked it. Yeah, probably not. All right, so that book never came to be. Could you have written that as a good book or you just did you have no idea what you were doing? Yeah, actually, I think I could have because I had a lot of blind dating experience. And also, you know, as a social worker, I feel like I understand people and communication a little bit. So I felt like it wasn't just completely out of the blue. Like I did have something to say, uh, but it just would have been like a checkout, you know, counter kind of book, you know, does nothing, nothing big, nothing special. Right. Uh, the thing I want to say that pisses me off a little bit before you get deep into your book is um, I, for years have had this little arrogant thing about me, right? Which is people will be like, well, I want to write a book about blah, blah, blah. And in my head, I'm like, oh, wow, that's great. You want to write a book. Like, I want to drill teeth, but it doesn't mean you know how to do it. You know, like, oh, it's so easy. Oh, you can go write a book. All right, you don't even, you're not even a fucking journalist. You're going to go write a book. Okay, makes, buddy. Wait, that makes me laugh because I am literally telling everyone, oh, if I could do it, you could do it. Anybody right. can write Anyone a book. Anyone can write a book. <laughs> but I mean, I say like you have to put the work in. It's not like you could just sit down and write a book, although I'm sure somebody can. You know, I learned, I took the time, but if I can do it, anyone else can do it too. I mean, I think part of it, tell me if I'm wrong, like, you are an expert in the fields you are writing about, right? So like, I'm not saying you couldn't write a biography, a capable Bo Jackson biography as an example, but like, 
there's, it's a different kind of thing writing like a sports biography where you interview, and I'm not saying you couldn't do it, but it's definitely a different thing when you say. Yeah, I am not a writer. I write. Well, you are a writer. Okay, but I feel like I write about my expertise. You know, like I don't, but although I will say now I write about other things, like I've been writing for the LA Times, which has been super fun. And I've written about all kinds of things that have nothing to do with social work, families, children, uh, you know, therapy, any of that. So I feel like I've branched out, but I'm, you know, a baby writer. I'm going to say two things about you that I think are very true. Number one, you're wearing my mom's nightgown. Correct. Yeah, she gave it to me. Number two, you have improved so drastically, so drastically. And like... Your first book to this book, just alone, the writing is so much better. And it's not that the writing was bad in your first book. It was good. But, like, you've just improved a lot. You picked up a lot. You figured it out. You hear the word. You hear it in your head a lot more. It's just, like, very obvious. So um, I used to think, again, probably arrogantly, like, either you know how to write or you don't know how to write. And it's like, there's not that. But I don't feel that way anymore. I think, like, you actually can learn how to write. And one can learn to be a really good writer. And, like, you just you got to bust your ass. But I feel like you've done it. So you have a book. Again, First Phone. A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette. It is coming out on July 26th. Um, it is published by Tartar Perigee. Perigee. I just said Perigee. Oh, okay. Okay. And um, it's interesting because you basically created five kids. The book is written in a way for young teenagers, um, but also for parents. It's like written for young teenagers who are getting their first phone and how to deal with having their first phone but it's also written for parents in a sense. Um, but it's written to kids. And that seemed, that's something I've never done, like writing to a young audience, specifically to a young audience, that seems complicated and kind of a pain in the ass. Yes or no? You know, I feel like I found like my perfect audience to write to because um, first of all, I love kids. Like I, I feel like I can speak to kids in person. You know, I can always talk to a kid. And um, also I'm not a very like, elaborate writer. I am a pretty practical and simple writer. So I feel like your mental simplicity is perfect for a 14 year old. Kind of. Mm -hmm. I mean, and also I was writing for eight to 13 years old, really, you know, so like tweens and, you know, late elementary school age. And so that's pretty straightforward writing. And I feel like I have a way of talking to kids that I was able to translate, but I didn't want this book to be an old lady talking to young kids about the dangers of the internet. So I created these five kids to have their voices in the book. So like they could speak from their point of view about the mistakes that they made or, you know, warning signs. So it was really like relatable to kids. And uh, I just want to say the illustrations in this book are done by a friend, a Perlman family friend, Dave Coverley, uh, who you might know from speed bump. He's syndicated all over the, the, the country, probably the world. I don't even know. And it's really well done. And um, again, you created five kids, five diverse kids who are going through different experiences with their phones and have different questions. And I've heard people say before that, you know, you hear people who write fiction say, I'm really going to miss X character when I'm done writing. Like you create this character and I feel like he was my friend and I would talk to him, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like you really went through that with these kids and that you were actually kind of sad when you were done because Benny is no longer around for you to create dialogue for. I 100% feel like I know these kids and they're real kids to me. But part of that is because, I mean, they were 
roughly based on different young people that I've known throughout the years. Not like solely, each person isn't solely based, they're conglomerates, but you know, each kid kind of reminded me of somebody. Like the kid Jack in the book, he reminds me of our son Emmett. You know, he likes robotics, he likes basketball, he's got curly hair, he's, you know, kind of... Handsome. Very handsome. Um, But, you know, that kid also has a parent in the military. You know, that's not our case. Um, So I did get to know them, and I feel like they are real to me. And I think part of that was because I spent so much time thinking in their voices, but also because the illustrations became so, they made them so real to me from the illustrations. Right. Um, Okay, so here's my big premise, and tell me if I'm wrong. At the base, it is batshit crazy that we hand our kids these devices and say, all right, have fun at school today. Like something has gone a little weird in America or in the world that these powerful devices where you can look up anything and you can call people and you can send things and blah, blah, blah. We're just going to give it to a kid and say, here it is, kid. Good luck with that. And it's not going to affect you at all. And it's going to be great. Yeah. I mean, I'd even say a decade ago, not that long ago, we as parents could really protect our kids from all kinds of things on the internet, from social media, from apps. You know, we could be really selective. I I remember our kids had, you know, an hour of TV a day. You know, it was really pretty basic. And, um, you know, now things have changed so much that even when parents don't get their kids' phones, one-year-olds are using iPads. You know, they've been searching YouTube since they were, you know, in kindergarten. Uh, So, and even if your kid doesn't have a phone or an iPad, I guarantee their best friend does or their, you know, person on the bus. So you cannot really, we can't remove the, the digital world for our kids. Like that's just not even an option anymore, which is why I felt it was so important to write the book because I think, you know, we as parents need to start educating our kids from a very young age about how to be smart and safe online and in a digital world in the same way we kind of do about sex ed. You know, the best way to do sex ed is not wait till they're in eighth grade or 10th grade and like give it to them all at one time. It's it's really good to kind of build on it slowly throughout childhood. And I think it's the same for this because we can't take it away. All right. So um, beginning when our kids first had their phones and this was you, I've learned a, a ton about parenting from you is um, we did not let our kids have the phones in their room when they went to bed. It was a big no-no. You could not, you were going to have the phone next to your bed. You were going to plug it in next to your bed. You leave it downstairs. You go upstairs. You go to bed. And you have a major emphasis in this book, you know, dreams, not screens, uh, screens, on the idea of sort of the value of sleep and phones. How big of a problem is it, do you feel like, phones, the impact of sleep, and the impact of phones being in bedrooms? So we don't have a direct um, causation between phones and mental health decline, uh, mental health issues. But what we do know is that when kids have their phones in their rooms, they are on them all night long. They're getting less sleep. They're getting more interrupted sleep. And we know from a lot of research that when kids get less sleep, they have more anxiety, more depression, more suicidality. They have lower grades, less concentration. And so it becomes... um, you know, a sort of a downward cycle. And we also know that there's an epidemic with our kids with, you know, anxiety and depression. I mean, it's really skyrocketed since smartphones have become available, even though, again, we can't point to it being a causative relationship. Do you feel like there is? Uh, I mean, I think it's multi-pronged, but I think for sure 
all of the times that kids are spending on their phones and also sleeping with their phones is a problem. And the other thing is when kids sleep with their phones, they tend to do riskier behaviors at night. I mean, it makes sense when everybody's around, you know, they're not sexing during the day when their mom is making dinner um, or their dad is watching, you know, whatever next to them. It's just in the middle of the night, you know, nothing good is happening at one, two or three o'clock on, you know, with kids in their phones. They call them vampers, kids that use their phones at night. And it's kind of like a bad sounding word. And it's it actually makes sense, you know, because they're they're more likely to do risky behavior in the middle of the night. Interesting. When we um, our daughter, Casey, is now in college, so I can tell the story when she first got her phone around the time she first got her phone, uh, a boy in her grade sent her a picture of his privates. And this is called sexting, if you didn't know. I'm just kidding, that was a joke, this is called sexting. And um, I was like, what the fuck? Like I was like really, really alarmed by this and really bothered. And you handled it as freaking smooth as butter. You truly did. And I wondered like, number one, what is the best way to handle something like that uh, from a kid's standpoint and from an adult standpoint? Um, and number two, I don't even know. Well, I mean, the, the, one of the themes that I tell parents in, at the end of the book um, is not to freak out, you know, because as soon as we overreact or freak out when something happens, mistakes are going to happen with our kids. And then they stop telling us things, you know, they just kind of go underground or they don't ask anybody or they don't get any help with things. So, you know, I try to remain calm, even if inside I'm going crazy. You're better at this than I am. <laughs> we laugh because your first thing is to freak out. <laughs> and then you calm down. But for me, I, I really try and remain calm. And the thing is, you know, um, in that case, I felt like it was an opportunity for that boy to have a learning opportunity. And I did contact his parents and um, he did have his phone removed. But, you know, hopefully it was a learning experience for him and for um, for our daughter. You know, kids are going to make mistakes. I know someone I saw... Um, uh, someone I follow on Instagram yesterday posted that she fell for a scam and half of her money in her bank account was stolen Whoa, because really? she, yeah, she was, she made a mistake and someone contacted her saying they were the bank and they weren't the bank. And so if adults make mistakes, kids are certainly going to make mistakes, big mistakes. They don't even have like all of their brain growth done. So, you know, they make some big mistakes and it's important for parents to calm down and try and help kids educate, but to, to remain calm so that they can stay in the game. Is there a, um, advisable amount of time a kid uh, for a certain age, depending on age, should be on his or her phone per day? I mean, we can't even go with that. I mean, just, you know, before the pandemic, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended, you know, no more than one hour, no more than two hours, depending on age. But I mean, our kids are on their computers all day. Everything they can do on the phone, they can do on the computer. Um, they need their phones to access all their schoolwork or whatever. So, uh I think it's more about being smarter about screen time and being more mindful than it is about the actual amount of time because not all screen time is equal. So, you know, if what they're else, you, you know, mindlessly scrolling through TikTok videos is not the same as engaging with friends on a video game or playing on, on Discord, you know, chatting with a bunch of friends or um, looking up homework or researching on the Internet, you know, like so like not all Internet or screen time is the same. It's like, is, are they doing it alone or are they doing it with someone else? Are they, um, you know, is it educational? Is it, you know, it, I think it all depends on, on what they're doing. And I think it also matters how much 
non-screen time they have rather than worrying about screen time okay well what are you doing that is off the screen are you playing sports are you in boy scouts are you um you know on a debate team like what else are you involved in so that your whole entire life isn't wrapped up in your screen is it realistic could you conceivably be the parent of a 12 year old or 13 year old and say i'm just not getting you a cell phone like it's 2022 i just think it's crazy i know all your friends have cell phones just not doing it so there was a big campaign um called like wait till eight eighth like so to try and have parents wait until eighth grade you know that's like 13 plus 14 years old but i am kind of against that i think i don't know that eight and nine years old except for some rare circumstances is the right age but i do kind of think 11 and 12 might be the right age because by the time your kid is 14 they're on to their friends they're out you know they're, they're less likely to be open to being educated by their parents or having their parents in their social media. But, you know, at 11 and 12, your kids are still very much still involved with their parents and open to more communication, more education. And so I think, you know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like we don't have to get our 11 year old a phone that does absolutely everything. We can get them something uh, and sort of build on it slowly. I remember our daughter got Instagram and I was on it with her. Mm -hmm. I would advise her about, you know, what she should say and what what to look for and things like that. So I think there's a learning curve. And so waiting until they are older and giving them the full phone, I don't know that that's really any better. Is it okay? Is it smart? Is it something you should do to secretly check your kid's phone at night when they're asleep just to make sure, just to make sure? I don't even think it has to be secret. I think most of the time it should either be upfront or you shouldn't be doing it at all. And I, I would say to kids, you know, periodically, I am going to check your phone for safety, but then it's important for parents, again, not to freak out for whatever it is they see. And again, this is about learning and teaching, um, educating our kids rather than punishing them for whatever we see. I was going to say, nothing has been more disappointing to me than the times I've checked our son's phone. Like our daughter had some kids send pictures and I check my son's phone every now and then. And it's like him debating video games with his friends. It's like the lamest content ever, you know, like, I'm looking for excitement in my life and there's just nothing there. Well, the truth is the kids are pretty smart. I know. Our son is almost 16. So I think that, you know. Is 16 too old to check a phone, kid's phone? I think so. Unless you have some specific major concern with, you know, safety, drugs, uh, I think they should have a certain amount of privacy. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's been watching a documentary on Warren Jeffs and now wants to start a cult. I've spoken with God Almighty. And in 23 days, 6 hours and 14 minutes, and 2 seconds to be exact, the world will be destroyed by a giant meatball. Follow me to Toledo if you want to live. Uh, can, can you add one final touch, please? Oh, right. And before you follow me to go to Toledo, go to royalretros.com and spend all your money on the best throwback hats, shirts, and jerseys. Then, and only then, will you be safe from the meatballs in Toledo. Wow, you're just like Warren Jeffs. Thanks. My 36 wives would agree. So you have a, um, you have a full chapter uh, called To Google or Not To Google. And it actually made me think of something, which is um, in America recently, there have been a lot of efforts to remove books from schools. We talked about this a while ago. Carmel, New York, near my hometown. We need to get these books out of schools because they have offensive content and blah, blah, blah. And I always think like, Unless your kid does not have a cell phone, you should just shut up because the stuff you can find by Googling is a million times worse than any book that you're imagining in school. And I wonder, like, um, 
obviously the internet gives these kids like access to absolutely everything. Is it realistic to think that we can stop? Like you write about like you tell kids, think before you Google a gory accident scene. Think before you Google some weird whatever, blah, 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 sexual position or animal killing animal or whatever it is. Is it realistic that kids have the mental stamina to actually say, uh, I don't think I want to see this? I think it's a learned behavior. I think teenagers are notoriously impulsive. So sure, it's harder on a teenager to think like, well, I'm not going to Google that. But I think it is something that can be learned. I mean, I don't like scary movies. They make me, you know, have nightmares. So I don't watch them. And um, I think kids can have permission to not look up everything that crosses their mind or to say, even if they are Googling, not everything on the Internet is true. Sometimes you might see something that's scary and at least be okay to talk to me about it. Like you might see something I want you to be able to come to me and say, like, I saw something I shouldn't have seen, but now I don't know what to do about it. Right. You uh, you give some really good advice. I guess I love it. I do love this book. Like I read it when you wrote it. I think it's so smart. I really do. I just think it's smart. I think it's really, really intelligent. And you write about texting and it's stuff I never would have thought of to tell to a kid. Some of the advice you give, you wrote, when you were texting, you cannot see any of that. It can, it can be very easy to misread a text or from the wrong understanding, form the wrong understanding of the feeling behind the words. To avoid this, it's helpful to follow a few simple rules while texting. Number one, avoid bad news. Since we don't know how someone will react uh, or if they will need support, it's best to call someone to share the news. Number two, don't use all caps. When people receive messages in all capital letters, they can be read like someone is screaming. Uh, number three, assume good intentions. Sometimes you may read a text and feel hurt or sad. It's possible you may have misread or missed the context. If that, hap- that happens to everyone. Remember, there are no facial expressions or voices to help you note the tone. When in doubt, assume a positive tone. Use emojis and images to help with context. I feel like you've been talking to my mom. Because she's just, <laughs> what? I love emojis and I'm not ashamed. Yeah. Uh, Besides using words, it can be fun to express ourselves using pictures and symbols. In fact, adding an emoji or meme to text helps the reader understand the emotions of the post. Plus, it can be cool to make avatars that look like you or use funny symbols to lighten up text. Um, It is really interesting because I think every advice you just gave there applies to adults, too. Like, someone does need to tell my mom to stop using caps all the time. And someone needs to tell my mom what an eggplant emoji means. Oh, my God. I'm not kidding. Like... It's really good advice. Do you just think like even now, 2022, we're so into this phone thing. There's no turning back. People still just don't get it. No, I think people get it. But I think, you know, social cues are helpful. When we see people's facial expressions, that lets us know how they're feeling, how they're reacting, how to talk to somebody. But that doesn't happen in texting. And I think even adults get caught off guard by misreading a text, misreading the tone. Like I have an example in the book where um, one of the kids is trying to get in touch with one of the other kids needs help with homework or something. And the other kid doesn't respond. And immediately the kid starts to think, why is she not responding? Is she mad at me? What's going on? We've all had that where we're like, why haven't I heard from so-and-so? Are they mad at me? And that a person's just like living their life, doing their thing, you know? Um, So I think that uh, a lot of those things are just good reminders for all of us. I have one of the worst text story, texting stories ever. It's not really texting, but it dates back to my time at the Tennessean when I snuck onto a colleague's computer. <laughs> and <laughs> it was really bad. Yeah, bad judgment. I had bad judgment. Um, all right. What are the 
biggest mistakes young people make with their phones? Like the mistakes to avoid, the things that you see the most often, the things that need to be dealt with. Uh, I think thinking that they're having a private conversation with somebody, even though things disappear, even though they're just talking to their best friend or their girlfriend or boyfriend, um, nothing is private, nothing is permanent. Everything can be screenshot or might be your boyfriend now, but in a year from now, it's not your boyfriend and now he's sharing everything. So I think we have to be really mindful that if you don't want something shared, uh, don't don't type it because we used to say things on the phone to our friends and, and you know we didn't have to worry that it was going to be repeated but too many times that's happening um, that sexting is it's normal for kids these days I'm not saying it's good and I don't recommend it but I think it's pretty common and I think kids are still again thinking this is like their way of flirting but it has permanent consequences plus it's illegal if they're underage people um, so I think that's that's a big mistake. Wait, let me ask you real quick. If you're a parent and you find out um, your daughter sent a picture of whatever her breasts or something to like her boyfriend or something, and she's 15 years old, um, the initial reaction, certainly my reaction, would have been to freak out. Mm-hmm. Um, how should you handle it? I think you have to try and understand where the kid is coming from. You know, why did you send that? Did you feel pressure? Were you flirting? What's going on? I think a lot of times kids do feel a lot of pressure to sext. Um, And so trying to get to the bottom of that, and you know, if you freak out and you're like, don't ever do that again, you don't really understand why it happened. So, you know, I'd kind of want to know if they were pressured, um, if it was flirting, try and say, okay, what other ways can you maybe flirt or get the attention? And how would you feel if this got sent around the school, which absolutely does happen? So, you know, let's try and play that out and imagine what that would be like. And, um, you know, all we can do is advise our kids and minimize the chances. So I think removing phones at night definitely minimizes the chances that sexting will happen, but it doesn't, it's not impossible. Is it? Okay. We had our kids without their phones from the very beginning in their bedrooms at night. So it was never, there's never a world where they didn't know that. Let's say you're a parent and your kid's, whatever, 13, and your kid's had his phone in the room for the last two or three years, and all of a sudden you hear, you read your book, and you're like, all right, we need to, Jimmy, we're moving your cell phone. Well, that's not, like, that's not going to go over well. How do you possibly sell that one? Okay, so I always say to parents, just because you made a mistake doesn't mean you can't make a change. So if your kids are sleeping with their cell phones, Pick a date on the calendar. Let them know ahead of time. This is when it's ending. If you make something a non-negotiable, they can argue, they can whine, they can cry, they can scream, but it's still going to happen. And that's where I'm going to revert back to my first book, which is Ignore It. Your kids will definitely be very angry about this, but once they see it's non-negotiable and nothing that they do is changing that, they'll move on. And it ended up being for our daughter, daughter at least, that I think she kind of liked shutting it down mm-hmm. and she would tell her friends like don't tell me anything you know by 9 30 because I don't want to be upset or I don't want to be like riled up at night so um she got very used to it and also I recommend that parents do it you know our kids are looking at our behavior and you know our etiquette and our um ability to put our phones down and if we're not able to do that well we can't really expect that from our kids that's what I'm saying interesting which is recently you and I both started sleeping with these headbands so you could listen to like soothing podcasts or I listen to rain at night. And in order to do it, I have to have my cell phone over by the bed and I've never had my cell phone near me. 
And um, I freaking hate it. I hate it. I hate waking up in the morning and seeing the cell phone there and being like, ugh. It's just like, it feels like I just smoked a cigarette. Like I really, really just don't like the feeling of having the cell phone nearby. I just find you end up wasting so much time when you should be going to sleep or, you know, in the morning when you should be getting up. It's like the first thing you don't want to have an assault of the day's news. You know, you kind of want to get up slowly and um, adjust to life before having to be assaulted by everything on social media. So I, I hate sleeping with my phone. I think the pandemic made sleeping difficult and also, you know, my dad's health being what it was, having my phone near was important, but uh, I am now going back to my phone downstairs and I'll have to figure out something else for sleeping. And the one thing that's cool about you is you're such a joy in the morning. So I really, (laughs) I am not a morning person. I I am fully comfortable saying that even the kids knew don't, don't address mom until after the seven and be gentle. That's true. Um, Is there a, an appropriate age when your kid can have a, I mean, Facebook isn't really a good example because no kid wants to be on Facebook, but a TikTok account, Instagram account, Maybe Twitter, but not really. You know, the the big two are Instagram and TikTok. Is there an age when it is okay to start it? And is there a way you should handle it? So I think that, you know, the social media companies clearly are requesting that, you know, kids are not on until age 13. You know, you're technically not supposed to be on, but, you know, you don't have to have your own account to view these social media. So it's kind of irrelevant. Um, I would recommend that parents allow kids to start with one kind of social media and then do it together. You know, be able to learn together and see what comes up. You know, one of the things that I've been really interested in lately is what's recommended for you on social media. So, you know, obviously there's an algorithm and whatever you click on, it sort of narrows down your interests and decides what to show you. And um, some of that can be pretty disturbing for kids, what what's being shown to them when they, um, you know, all these challenges and, um, you know, like blackout challenges or eat cinnamon challenges, you know, these stupid things that are silly, but, you know, they're kind of dangerous for kids. There's a lot of weight loss stuff. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of stuff. I think it, rather than wait till your kid is older and then just like let them go because, you know, it's allowed, I would give them something as like a learning tool and to work on it slowly with them. And what age, what age do you view as the age where you sort of take the shackles off and it's like, all right, it's you go get them, whatever you want. It's your phone. I would say late teens, but just because you have free reign doesn't mean we're still not going to talk about it. So like a lot of times if I see something that's on the news, you know, um, this girl got, uh, was texting her, ex-boyfriend or some some guy in school that he should kill himself and he did um, and she went to jail so you know that's something okay. I would bring up and talk about with the kids or did anything you know cyberbullying something happened whatever so I think just because I'm letting you have full access and I'm not checking your phone anymore doesn't mean I'm not going to talk to you especially about scams and you know just dangers or research that's come out you know I think parents need to continue having conversations about the stuff long after they're give their kids free reign on their phones. You know, one thing I think is really intriguing about the, I used intriguing because I always say interesting. How was that? That was good. Better. Right? One thing I find really interesting is that um, we, like when you and I were growing up, you would get information. If you were a kid, you almost never would even get the news. But if you did get the news, it would be when you're home and it's on TV, right? Or maybe it'd be on the radio in the morning or something. So you hear some update at some point during the day or week. And now like, 
I mean, tonight, today, there were two school shootings, two shootings in Indiana. Our kids probably know about that already. You know, like, you know everything, and the weight can feel so heavy because it is all there on top of you, you know? And um, you know everything about everything about everything. Climate change is all over us. Politics is all over us. School shootings is all over us. Everything is all over us. And it does seem like, in a way, while every kid wants a cell phone, it really destroys the innocence of youth to a certain degree. Totally, but you know what? It's just, there's no way to shield your kids even if you don't give them a cell phone because someone else has it. Some other kid needs it because they have to walk home from school and their parent works or they don't have a home phone or whatever the reason may be, their parents are divorced. Some some younger kid is gonna have a phone or again, an iPad. And, you know, by the time the kid comes home from school, they've already known like it used to be. We had to think about, like, how would we talk to our kids about the shooting? Would we talk to our kids about this thing that happened? And now they already know by the time they come home. But I remember, I know you do, too, vividly, the Challenger space shuttle explodes. Okay, it's a huge, huge deal in America. Krista McAuliffe, teacher in space, whole thing. This is 1985, I think. I come home from school. I learn about it because my parents are watching it on TV and we have a discussion about it. If that happened in 2022, it, I learn about it immediately. I have to process it on my own, my little 13-year-old head. It's just a totally different ballgame. And there's 50 million videos from every person's viewpoint that, you know, it's like a constant assault. So, you know, being able to... One of the things I talk about in the book is to recognize that our mental health is affected by access to the internet, social media, and all of this stuff. Like it, it does affect us and that kids have to also learn, okay, I'm feeling icky. My phone is making me feel uncomfortable. What can I do about it? So they have to recognize the feeling. They have to understand what they're feeling and then work on some self-care. And so I talk to the kids about self-care as much as I talk to adults. It's something that we don't talk enough about with kids, but you know, they are very much affected by their phone as we are. And we have to start helping them manage all of their feelings and emotions and take care of themselves. Well, don't you feel part of the problem or maybe an issue is for a lot of parents and myself included at times in our, in our kids' lives, like the phone makes it all a little easy. Like I want to go do something. My kid's on his phone. I want to do something. Our daughter's on her computer. And like, it's easy to say, all right, we need to really make sure this and make sure that and blah, blah, blah. But the, the computers and the phones and the technology allows a level of laziness in parenting that sometimes can be kind of delightful. For sure. But I can tell you from many parents who've contacted me, you know, my teenagers, they don't talk to me. They don't look at me. They're always in their rooms. They're always on their phones. It's That didn't just happen overnight. It was built over years. So of course, there are times where parents will feel exhausted, lazy, no problem. Let your kid watch whatever they want. Um, give a little extra screen time. But I think in the long run, all of our relationships do suffer. So I try and have like some screen, screen-free family times, like meals. Some people do like a day where, you know, there's no screens for the family or evenings or whatever time period during the day. But I think it is important that we connect. And some of our happiest times are fun times with our kids was playing at restaurants, like playing cards, mm-hmm. you know, building sugar castles, like entertaining each other, 
being together as a family. That was like the one time where we weren't distracted, where we were all together. And um, I'm glad we didn't have phones, you know, that that wasn't a thing that we chose to do, wasn't available when they were young. And then as they were older, that wasn't for us. I want to double down on this. Um, It drives me crazy. It truly does. When I see a family at dinner, at a diner or restaurant or whatever, and the two kids are on their cell phones and... You're right. Like we had some, we just had some of our great, you would always bring like skateboards and little cars and we'd have little card games. And my big thing, which I got from my dad was the building of sugar uh, packets into castles and, you know, playing whatever paper football on the table or whatever it is. And that just seems kind of dead. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of empathy for parents because I think this is a pretty hard gig and Hmm. Parents are letting their kids use their phones at meals because they can't deal or they're out of tools or they don't know how to handle it. So I do have empathy. Um, I wish we could work harder on helping parents in those moments. Um, And they're also, I know whenever that kind of complaint is said, there's always um, some parent of a kid who has special needs. That's like, you know, my kid needs it. Absolutely, you do what your kid needs. Um, But I think, you know, we've kind of diminished the amount of time we spend as a family non-distracted and parents are just as bad. Their kid is talking to them. They're on their phone um, or they um, just sending a quick text or, you know, the kids telling them for the millionth time about Legos and they're just not really paying attention. They're doing they're scrolling through Facebook, you know, so like uh, we all need to kind of work on this kids and adults alike. We don't have them. But to me, Apple watches are the devils. Beep, boop, 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 boop. Oh, I got to go for a sentence. Just vibrate real quick, real quick. That sentence, real quick, real quick. Got to check this real quick, real quick. This shit drives me crazy. I actually don't even think it's people saying real quick. What bothers me is they're listening to you, but they're uh, they're also looking through something else. So they're multitasking, which means you can't fully be really listening. And, and that just never feels good. Well, do you know people who do, who do that? Obviously, everybody does it at some extent, but yeah. I don't like it. Um, let me ask you this. So this is your second book. You're now a twice published author. Um, has it gone blase at all for you? Like, is the thrill, I'm actually being serious, is the thrill still the same as it was for the first book? Or is it like anything, a little less the second time you do it? I don't think so, because this is a totally different book, and um, I'm still just as excited. And the first book, I know this is so silly, but my picture wasn't on the back of the book. Totally get it. And this one, my picture is, my name is on the book. It's like, I, oh, yeah, I did really write this. And not for nothing, I wrote it during a pandemic. So life wasn't so easy. Um, so I'm pretty proud of myself. And um, I think it's still pretty exciting. And I think seeing your book on Amazon and seeing it in the bookstore, like, I don't know that that ever gets old. I agree. Also, I want to give you a huge compliment, which is this. When we, um, when we first met, you had never run, and you, but you had in your head that you wanted to run a marathon. You ran two. Uh, when we first met, you had this book proposal on dating. You know how to fucking write. Like, you just wrote a book proposal. <laughs> you now have two books published, all right? First one was freaking reviewed in the New York Times. Like, you you, you, you have this ability where you decide, like, she, she paints in the garage, and she paints these amazing things. Or she decides, I'm just going to make this big sculpture out of paper mache. And now we have this huge, awesome sculpture made of paper mache. You just decide you're going to do things, and you do them. And it's really, really impressive. And not little things. It's not like I'm going to have strawberry ice cream today. Like you decide, I'm going to run a marathon, then you run two. I'm going to, I want to write a book. I'm going to, you write two books. Um, It's really impressive. It still blows me away, seriously. And 
I'm really proud of you. I love this book. I think it's great. I think it's a real service. Um, it, it has a level of your selflessness in it um, as far as you, you really wrote it to help people. And uh, I think it's going to sell a million copies if we each buy 500,000. <laughs> no, I think it's going to, I just think it's great. And I appreciate you, Catherine Perlman, for coming. Thank you. On Two Writers Sling and Yang. Thank you, Jeff Perlman, for having me on. That's it. That's it. You have something else to say? No. I want to thank today's guest, Catherine Perlman, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can find Catherine, well, one pillow over, but also on Twitter at The Family Coach and on Instagram at Catherine Perlman. And please, do us all a favor and go to the bookseller of your choice and buy first from A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette. Our kids need to eat. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the fantastic MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. <laughs>